Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. So anyway, as I was saying, there was a fellow that I'm trying to give an offer of employment to, and uh, when he had turned 18, he got into a relationship with a young woman who claimed that she was of age, and her Facebook presence showed that she was living in an apartment, she had a car, she had a job, and they started exchanging naughty pictures back and forth. Well, come to find out, he met with a grandmother who disclosed to him that this young lady was not of age. He is, he was convicted of transporting and storing these images on his phone after the relationship went south and apparently word got out that these naughty pictures happened. He is now registered for 20 years and it impacts his ability to get a job. So what Mr. Brown was talking about is real life and if you can pass that along to other people about the foolish decisions that people make that impact their lives, I would encourage you to do so. Um, number two, um, I've really enjoyed teaching this, this class, this series. And it, and it really, um, I, I really uh, am passionate about a few things. One is <clears throat> about protecting the church, about making certain that the people of God are equipped for trends and issues that can impact the church today. I'm also passionate, as you know, about apologetics, the defense of the faith. Um, and also, very convinced that God in his wisdom and in his kindness has given us, in his word, everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. So, this series is very much in my wheelhouse, as some people use the term. But what makes it really helpful and what I want to express thanksgiving to you uh, for is this. Any, anybody who teaches, like, and I'm very thankful for uh, Mr. Falk uh, teaching yet last week on the faithfulness and the faithfulness, the mark of God's people and the call to faithfulness. But anybody who teaches, um, your feedback and your participation is so helpful and it so much makes the class better than simply a talking head. And I want to thank all of you who are able and willing to participate in that regard because it, it really does make a difference. It's not only our physical attendance at things like adult Christian ed, worship, prayer meeting, midweek meetings, whatever they are, but also your active participation, preparing ahead of time, being a student of God's Word, um, being able and willing, if you have the courage and the personality, and not everybody does, but if you're able to participate, I, I, I want you to know how much from this perspective it means a great deal. And I do believe that it makes a difference with the whole class, the whole group of people that congregate in those things. 
You know, there are some people in uh, the room who are animated and who will be responding. You know, I think of a couple of people. I'm not going to point them out and embarrass them. But <clears throat> they, they actively, physically respond to what's being taught. And if they agree, they're nodding their heads or, you know. So I want to encourage you, if you're able, if you're not terminally shy, to do that because it's a blessing not only to the person who's invested time and effort in preparation and teaching, but also for the rest of the room. So those are the two things I wanted to say. I'm sorry. Right. Yeah, I, if, even if you're not shy, I still accept comments. I may have to say, hey, that's great, but let's let someone else participate. <laughs> because there are some people, and I will not point them out, who are very active <laughs> in participation. <laughs> All right. All that aside, let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for your goodness and not only calling us to yourself, but giving us the opportunity to serve you, to serve each other, to be a blessing and an edification, a building up of, of the saints. What compassion you have shown in turning those who were under wrath, who were enemies, into those who, like Onesimus, are useful. And Lord, we pray that we would be useful in your service. We do thank you for this series, for challenging us, for causing us to examine your word in our lives, for your honor and glory, for the exaltation of Christ. And we praise you in his name. Okay, so we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It is the longest of the chapters that Paul dedicated to this church in Corinth. And as he does write to them, he is writing about a significant and important item in Jesus' life here upon this earth, this veil of tears. And the question is, if you had the opportunity to travel back in Mr. Peabody's Wayback Machine, and those of you who are old enough will know what that means, what event in Jesus' life would you like to have witnessed in person? His birth, transfiguration, feeding of the 5,000, the crucifixion, the, trans, the, the, the uh, ascension, uh, the death burial. What, what would it be? What would you want to see? What, where would you want to be? All of them. Yes. Okay. It is hard. Yeah. Well, the question would be, yeah, what would you want to 
you know, with your current knowledge, where would you want to be? For me, you know, my first answer would be the road to Emmaus. I mean, that, because he, you know, starting with Moses and the prophets, he explained, you know, himself. You know, to me, that, all of it, though, really. So, now let's transition from there. What is the saddest funeral you have ever been to? It may have been a little white box on a table. A box maybe three foot in size. It may have been a funeral of a patriarch or a matriarch who died after a horrible life where there was no hope as compared to the, the most joyous funeral or homecoming that you've ever been a part of. What made that funeral the funeral of a beloved saint? What made that one a time of encouragement? What was the difference? Christ. We knew where, where they were. There was hope. Say what? They were at peace. If they're in Christ, they were with the Prince of Peace, right? Okay. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, our text for today, about the resurrection. There's a great quote here by MacArthur. Let me read that. Just as the heart pumps life-giving blood to every part of the body, so the truth of the resurrection gives life to every other area of gospel truth. The resurrection is the pivot on which all of Christianity turns, and without which none of the other truths would much matter. Without the resurrection, Christianity would be so much wistful thinking taking its place alongside all other human philosophy and religious speculation. So the simplest question, the simplest answer to the question, why can't Christianity be refuted, could be, I am not able to explain away an event in history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So today, let's look at first some confusion on the part of the Corinthians and today in us concerning the resurrection. So, what erroneous ideas existed concerning the resurrection in Paul's day? The ancient Greeks disdained the notion that the body would ever be raised. Thus, when Paul spoke concerning the resurrection of the dead ones in Athens, his message was mocked. You remember that? That's in Acts 17. Now, during the time of Jesus, of course, the Sadducees denied the resurrection of the body. And there was this dear old saint in our church in Saginaw, Michigan, who explained why the Sadducees were so miserable because they didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. And now I've just burdened you with that. Even some of the Christians in the primitive church had fallen for the error and so affirmed that there is no resurrection of the dead, which if you look in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, Paul is specifically addressing. <clears throat> That's a heresy which Paul attempted to correct. 
in later decades of the apostolic age, a sect known as the Gnostics arose, denying the resurrection of the body. Now, notice, this important discussion with the church at Corinth was not primarily focused on the issue concerning Jesus' resurrection, but their concern for their loved ones. You have this intermingling. You have this cafeteria-style approach where you're gathering information. You're bringing your own baggage, your philosophical baggage, to your Christian faith. It's impacting your thinking so that many of us who had been spoon-fed evolution come into Christian faith and remain evolutionists. That would be me until I actually started studying biology more deeply and realizing that, hey, this can't be, God's word must be true. Paul was not trying to convince them, the Corinthian believers, that Christ rose from the dead, but that one day they too would be raised with him in newness and eternal life. Nevertheless, to lay the foundation, in the first 11 verses, he reviews the evidences for Christ's resurrection, a truth he acknowledges, verse 11, and verse 1, that they already believed. Now, some of the confusion was a result of their experiences with pagan philosophy and religions. That dualism that existed, physical bad, spirit good, corrupted true biblical faith. So, let's look at the problems and errors that we have today. In our own age, atheism, of course, rejects the idea that the human body will be raised from the dead. An article in the Soviet Encyclopedia, interestingly enough, states that the concept of the resurrection is in, quote, decisive contradiction with scientific natural knowledge. I don't disagree with that at all. It's accurate. It's not according to man's natural laws, is it? Man's natural laws. Cultish groups also have a problem with the doctrine that God will raise the body. The Jehovah's Witnesses assert that the incorrigibly wicked will never be remembered for resurrection. Within the churches of Christ, those who have been converted to a doctrine called preterism believe that the resurrection is past already the final, ultimate resurrection. For centuries, many of the world's distinguished philosophers have assaulted Christianity as being irrational, superstitious, and absurd, including this issue of the resurrection of the dead, the righteous and the wicked, to final judgment. Many have tried to explain the resurrection away through various theories, which we will get to today, and which you may have already been schooled in. Whether ancient or modern, within the church or outside of it, the denial of the bodily resurrection is a radical error. And in this age of biblical illiteracy, this false doctrine will continue to make its presence felt among the people of God unless we continue to stay on the solid teaching and the fundamental principles of God's Word, one of which is the resurrection of Christ and the final resurrection of of all men, either to eternal life or to judgment. So, 
What facts do we know and cherish from the biblical account of the resurrection starting with predictions, death, preparation of the body, burial, protection of the tomb, and the resurrection account itself? What do we know from God's word are true about the resurrection? Well, let's dive right in, shall we? Let's go to the historic account and the refutation of error. Either the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted upon human beings' minds or the most remarkable fact of history. You start with the Old Testament. Does the Old Testament point to a resurrection? That's the right answer. How? Where? <laughs> Rick Berger. The book of Job. Yes, excellent. I know that my Redeemer liveth. All right, what else? Where else? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, <laughs> our, 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 our favorite teacher is reciting all of the books of the Old Testament. <laughs> he is in them all. Yes, Jesse. Excellent. Excellent. <clears throat> let me, I'm going to, if you have, if you're writing down things, let me throw a few ideas at you from <clears throat> Old Testament preparation and predictions. Job 19, as was referred to. Psalm 16. Psalm 17. Psalm 22, of course, right? Isaiah. Which, which chapter in Isaiah? 53. Someone said 53. Also Isaiah 26. Daniel 12. Hosea chapter 13. So, the Old Testament is replete. Yes, Christ is evident throughout all of the Old Testament. The idea of the resurrection is also referred to. So, the Old Testament prepares us for the truth of the resurrection of Christ and of his people. Letter B. Jesus prepared his disciples. As you read the four Gospels, you cannot avoid the fact that Jesus predicted over and over again his betrayal, his death, and his resurrection. Three years before he was raised from the dead, in John chapter 2, Jesus said, destroy this temple and what? And in three days, right, it will raise up again. The resurrection was the sign. It was the sign given to a wicked and adulterous generation in Matthew chapter 12. It's the sign. The resurrection was the sign. Now, in addition... Jesus' predictions were common knowledge. Turn real quick to Matthew 27. Turn quickly to Matthew 27 and look at verses 62 through 64. <clears throat> Jesus did not live. Jesus did not do his miracles. Jesus did not exist in a corner hidden from all of the world. In Matthew 27, verse 62 through 64, listen to this. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember, while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. It was known. His enemies knew it. It was not something that was done secretly. He told his disciples about it. 
he helped prepare them for the fact. Did they remember? It doesn't appear so. <clears throat> but, next, the fact of the matter, Jesus' predictions were common knowledge, and the historic account and refutation of error require us to say that what he suffered was an actual death. How do we know that from the account? How do we know that Jesus died from the account? Say what again? Pierced on the side, right? Water and blood. What else? They didn't have to break his legs. <clears throat> Say it again. They didn't, they didn't have to break his legs. The people who were the formal executioners, the professional executioners, knew that he was dead. They knew they did not have to break his leg. What else do you know? Say it again. He was buried. All right? And even the preparation. Let's get into it. So, there are good reasons to believe the disciples were not wrong about the death of Jesus. Some people think that Jesus suffered, and how he suffered was like Paul. Remember, Paul was stoned, and they thought he was dead? Remember that? The experience that the disciples had with Jesus, however, was very different than the experience the disciples had with Paul at the point of his stoning. The disciples simply stood around Paul after the stoning, but they did far more with the body of Jesus following his crucifixion. There was extended contact with these eyewitnesses. We have a tendency to read over the verses very quickly. In Mark 15, it was preparation day, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, there were two people who were responsible for the body of Jesus. Do you remember who they were? Joseph of Arimathea, who else? Nicodemus. In John chapter 9, I, I had forgotten this. In John chapter 9, Nicodemus was the one who brought the hundred pounds of spices, gums, to prepare the body. And so this Italian marble statue in Italy commemorates Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus tending to the body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, placed it in the tomb, cut out rock. The disciples had to do what? They had to remove the nails, carry it some distance to the tomb, treat the body thoroughly with the ointments and the spices, wrap it around. Basically, think of duct tape. All right? Because this was a sticky substance. And then place it in the tomb. When we read through this process in minutes, it actually took so, take a lot longer to proceed. Surely the disciples were also deeply grieved by the death of Christ, but in all this extended contact, do we really think they wouldn't do everything possible to prove that he really wasn't dead? No. They would know from handling this body that he was dead. And how, how would you know that a body was dead? Now, there are very few of us in here who have actually had contact with a dead body. But what are the indicators? They're not breathing? They're cold. What else? Pardon? The color. The color. All right? There are specific things that identify the loss of temperature. When the heart starts pumping, the body begins to cool in the time it would take 
to get Jesus prepared for the tomb, the disciples certainly would have observed that he was cold. Rigidity. What's that called? Rigor mortis, right? When the blood is not circulating, the body begins to stiffen. Dead bodies begin to feel and behave differently than unconscious bodies with a beating heart. And the third point, and the coloration was the answer there. Lividity. Lividity. Gravity begins to act on uncirculating blood as blood settles in those extremities that are closest to the ground. Nate, what happens? Say what? There's blood pooling at the lowest point of the body. There's discoloration. Looks like bruising. All right? That's how people know if a body had been moved. You ever watch the detective shows? All right? So, it, in all the time it took to prepare Jesus' body, with all the extended contact the disciples had, is it really reasonable to think that they would not have really checked that he was dead? You also had unexpected cooperation. John, a disciple of Jesus, was raised as what? What was his occupation? He was a fisherman, right? He was a fisherman. John was a fisherman. I doubt he had any medical training unless it concerned carp. <clears throat> Yet, yeah, look what he reports in the Gospels. Go to John 19. And this is what Darren referred to. In John 19, there's the account of soldiers coming and breaking legs. But, when they came to Jesus, found he was already dead. They did not break his legs, but they did what? As the picture indicates, they took the spear, pierced it into his side, bringing a sudden flow of water and blood, which were not intermingled. John records an aspect of Jesus' body that is common when people are fatally wounded. Critical injuries typically cause people to enter circulatory shock, which is a condition <clears throat> that you may see at assault or accident scenes. When people die of their injuries, the death is often accompanied with pericardial or pleural effusion, a condition that causes water to accumulate around the sac, around the heart. All right, so you have the heart that's filled with blood, and then the sac around the heart that is filling with water. As best as I understand, and those who are medically trained can help me on this, I believe that part of it is that God's defensive mechanism to actually try to protect the heart by the accumulation of water. I'm not certain. Too much of it, of course, will actually impact the beating of the heart. But the fact that this spear pierced both the pericardial membrane and the heart itself, water and blood flowed unmixed down the side of Jesus. Certainly a death sentence if he wasn't already dead. That was the purpose of the piercing, yes. The purpose of the piercing was not only confirmed death, no response to the poking of the spear, but also to do it. You know, you have to poke within a certain number of ribs to get there. And again, this professional tormentor, torturer, murderer, executioner knew how to do this. So, you also have external confirmation. And that history tells us that there was a tremendous penalty to be paid by Roman soldiers who failed in their execution. <clears throat> Roman soldiers were brutal and meticulous. They executed their orders with precision. The Bible in John 19 records that we just looked at that this man, Jesus, was already dead. According to non-Christians, non-believers at the time, Jesus was dead on the cross. 
Now there was one who fell to his knees and said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Let's talk about the preparation of the body. The body of Jesus, in accordance with Jewish burial custom, was wrapped in a linen cloth with about 100 pounds of aromatic spices, gum, the sap from trees and plants, together to form a gummy substance wrapped to the, uh, applied to the linen wraps and wound about the body. Basically, looked like a mummy. A mummy in duct tape. To preserve the body, to help reduce the amount of stench. <clears throat> so you're wrapped in duct tape. Your heart has been pierced. You're already exsanguinated from all the loss of blood and dehydrated. You can't breathe. You're suffocating. Um, then he's placed, he's buried in a tomb. After the body was placed in a solid rock tomb, an extremely large stone was rolled against the entrance of the tomb. Now these stones could weigh as much as two tons, as much as 4,000 pounds. So you begin to think about this, and when you think about some of the myths and propaganda that are issued against the resurrection, you begin to think, okay, so this fellow who is severely beaten, exhausted, crucified, had all this nerve-wracking pain through the nerves that were pierced by these nails, loss of blood, dehydration, expiration, he died, and then his heart is, was pierced, and now they're going to wrap him in duct tape, stick him in a tomb, and he's going to get up and move this two-ton rock. Then there was the guarding and sealing of the tomb. Why is the guarding and sealing of the tomb screaming out against any lie concerning the resurrection? Don't be shy. Yes, Rick Berger. The seal that was affixed to that tomb was extremely important. If that seal was broken, it was a strong offense against the state. The Roman guard of strictly disciplined fighting men was stationed to guard the tomb. The guard, the guard affixed on the tomb that seal, which was meant to prevent any attempt at vandalizing the grave. Anyone attempting to move the stone from the tomb's entrance would have broken the seal and thus incurred the wrath of Roman law. The breaking of the seal that stood, the seal that stood for the power and authority of the Roman Empire. Any, any violation of that was subject to an extremely severe consequence. The empire called into action to find the men who were responsible. If they were apprehended, it was automatic execution uh, by crucifixion upside down. People feared breaking of the seal. Jesus' disciples were not brave at that point, were they? They ran, right? And then you have the problem of the empty tomb. The disciples of Christ did not go to Athens or Rome to preach that Christ was raised from the dead. Rather, they went right back to Jerusalem where, if what they were teaching was false, that false 
teaching would be immediately evident. So, Gamaliel, who was a member of the Jewish High Court, the Sanhedrin, later on put forth the suggestion that the rise of the Christian movement was God's moving, and he would not have done it if that tomb were still occupied. He would not have said that. And you have the question of, who moved that stone? Those who observed the stone after the resurrection describe its position as having been rolled up a slope. And if I understand it correctly, in some of these instances, not only were there the need to use levers to get the stone moved, but the stone actually was in a groove. So this heavy stone was rolled into place and then fell into a groove. Again, think about the improbability of frightened disciples coming and attempting to break the seal and move the stone in the presence of this large number of witnesses. Yes, Lisa. It was only Christ. It was only Christ that was guarded, and <clears throat> it was only Christ that was guarded. Yeah, this was this was not, <clears throat> yeah, not a common occurrence. You know, there could have been grave robbers that, but I'm not aware of it. You, your reading may have included that, uh, but as far as I know, this was an unusual circumstance. You know, headed by the Sanhedrin who wanted this done. Uh, if anybody knows anything different, um, you know, let let us know. Um, Yes. It does show how much they hated him and the disciples and how much it was going to ruin their way of life. The Roman guard went AWOL. The Roman guard went AWOL, away without leave. The Roman guards fled. They left their place of responsibility. How can their attrition be explained when Roman military discipline was so exceptional? The ancient historian Justin mentioned all the offenses that required the death penalty. The fear of their supervisor's wrath and the possibility of death meant that they paid close attention to the minutest details of their job. One way a guard was put to death was by being stripped of his clothes and then burned alive and a fire started with his garments. If it was not apparent which soldier had failed in his duty, then lots were drawn to see which one of that contingent would have been punished with death for the unit's failure. Certainly the entire unit would not have fallen asleep with that kind of threat over their heads. And then of course you have what we have already alluded to, the grave clothes. The neat part about the grave clothes is that scripture gives us an amazing indication. If you were wrapped up in duct tape and one of your friends decided to come and get you out, how would they do that? Very, 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 with grave difficulty. Cut them out, right? <clears throat> Unwrap it. Well, what's the description of Scripture concerning these grave clothes on Jesus' body? While the headpiece was taken off, folded, and laid down, the body encasement was as if the body just disappeared from it. You realize that? Like a cocoon. Exactly. John 20, verse 6 through 8. 
it would be a tight, solid covering that would protect the body and from which the body could not be pulled by any human means. The only way, humanly speaking, a body could have been removed from the encrusted wrappings would be by cutting the cloth from end to end and laying back each side so the body could be pulled from the wrapping. And that's not how the grave clothes were found. And the Shroud of Turin? Yeah, I'm not so certain. Let's keep going. Yes, Dan. How the stone got rolled away, yes. Earthquake and angel. There you go. It didn't have to do with the dead body in the tomb. Right? Yes. <laughs> we know that. Yeah, it was, the stone was rolled away for the disciples. You know, and of course the whole you know, earthquake and stone rolling away and the angel were there to also terrify the guards so. that was uh, John chapter 20 verses 6 through 8 uh, Dan Matthew 28 Matthew 28 2 alright let's keep going then, of course, you have Jesus' appearance confirmed by living witnesses. Christ appeared alive on several occasions. Up to how many people? 500, right? That's the text that we have. The New Testament accounts of the resurrection were being circulated within the lifetimes of men and women at the time of the resurrection. Those people could certainly have confirmed or denied the accuracy of those accounts. The writers of the four Gospels had themselves been witnesses or else were relating the accounts of eyewitnesses. If that had not been true, somebody would have gotten on Facebook, somebody would have hit their Twitter account, Reddit, Snapchat. No, that's not true. There would have been 16-year-old trolls, you know, who would have uh, dispersed the truth very quickly. Maybe they had MySpace back then. I don't know. <clears throat> well, had there been any tendency to depart from the facts in any material respect, the possible presence of hostile witnesses in the audience would have served as a corrective. And then you also have to consider the lives of the disciples. The lives of the disciples. But the most telling testimony of all must be the lives of those early Christians. We must ask ourselves, what caused them to go everywhere telling the message of the risen Christ and suffer all of that persecution if it was not for the truth? Now, we have current myths and propaganda by today's opponents of Christ. And they are that the disciples went to the wrong tomb. What's the problem with that? Well, the disciples went to the wrong tomb. And that's why they found an empty tomb. It was because it was not his tomb. What's the problem with that? The angel was there. The grave clothes were there. <laughs> yeah. It was, again, common knowledge. And the enemies would have said, hey, 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 you're in the, here it is, guys. Here's the body. Hallucinations. Another attempted explanation claims that the appearances of Jesus after the resurrection were either illusions or hallucinations. What's the problem with that? 500 people all hallucinating? They all ate the same mushroom? Really? Sorry, no. The swoon theory. 
He wasn't dead. That was uh, popularized by Ventrini, I believe it was, several centuries ago. And it's often quoted today. Jesus didn't die. He merely fainted from exhaustion and lack of blood. What's the problem with that? Everything we've already talked about, right? And lastly, the body was stolen. Then consider the theory that the body was stolen by the disciples while the guards slept. Yeah, we have the rock again. Yes, Bo. And we're, we're talking about Roman soldiers, and they understood what was at stake. Yeah. You know, they, when people say the Roman soldiers were sleeping, they knew their life was forfeit because it was a sealed event, and usually yep. they would be guarding a live prisoner, but because it was a body, it was still the same consequence. It's still the same consequence for those Roman soldiers, yes. well-trained soldiers, probably in the world at that time. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and these are fishermen people. They're not, going to have They're not professional soldiers that might have stolen the body. Exactly. You know, these were knuckle-dragging Neanderthals who were tougher than Joel Gallant. So, you know, really, do you want to go against an army of Joel Gallants? I ain't doing it. Who had a question? Dan. How many soldiers? How many soldiers? No, it wasn't. Does anybody know how many that contingency could have had? Hundred seventy. Your homework this week. Go home, do some research. I don't know the answer. That's why I'm saying that. <laughs> Let's move on, shall we? Okay. We need to. Yes. Yeah. So I stole a lot of his stuff for this. Yeah. The question is, the question is, yeah, is this one of circular reasoning? You're using the book to prove the book. Yeah. Yep. Now, that goes to the, the question of apologetics. Are you evidentialist apologetics? You're looking for evidences? Or are you a presuppositional apologist that looks at pre per people's presuppositions? If someone is antagonistic toward the gospel, no matter what evidence you give them, it's not going to convince them. It needs a change of heart, which is what, by God's grace, many, and if not all of us in this room have had. Joel. Uh, aren't there other historians that were uh, non religious historians? Yes. There are non-religious historians, like I referred to Justin earlier, who verify some of these things. So you have external evidence as well. Bottom line, though, is the fact that, yes, we will not believe unless God in His mercy gives us faith. Now, we're running out of time, but I needed to cover that because God in His wisdom in the first 11 verses covers a lot of this. But here's the glorious part. In this longest chapter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, there are 12 wonderful truths that we need to sink our teeth into. And they are these, the consequences or the implications of the resurrection. Number one, because Christ rose, we are not in our sins. He paid for our sins 
that penalty was accepted by the Father and we are recipients of His righteousness. That's a glorious implication of the gospel, of the resurrection. Number two, those who have died are in eternity with Jesus. We are not without hope. Number three, we are true witnesses of God. We confess that God is the one who raised him from the dead. We are being faithful, truthful, and accurate when we proclaim that. We're not lying. We can say in a clear conscience that God has raised Christ from the dead. Number four, our faith is not futile. Our hope is a true and glorious hope. We can hope in our future resurrection, in the entrusting of our loved ones to his eternal care, because Christ has really risen. The ones who die in faith, our loved ones, our friends, our family, we don't grieve as those without hope. Number five, those who are in Christ will be made alive. He is the resurrection and life, and those who trust in him will be raised up on that last day. We have great hope and confidence. Number six, we have the confirmation of our resurrection because of Christ who is the first fruit. You remember the first fruits? In the Old Testament, during the harvest, the first portion of fruits were taken and given in thankfulness to God as a promise of what God was going to deliver for the future. Christ is the first fruits of our resurrection. He is the promise of our resurrection. The fact that he was actually raised from the dead. It's a great sign and it points to our great hope. Seven, we know that death will be defeated by the one who conquered death, who is our conqueror, and will finally vanquish death. Number eight, we will be raised. incorruptible incorruptible any of us who have witnessed or suffered disease infirmity those of us who have had our hearing our vision our ability to move it'll be over Absolutely incorruptible. <laughs> we will inherit his kingdom in fullness without fear that it will ever be taken away. While we reign with Christ in our life now, then it will be a full and glorious reign in those resurrections. Number 10. It's not just a verse that you put in the nursery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We shall be changed. 
we will put on immortality. Death will be vanquished. There is no second death for God's people. That horrible fate is for those who are not in Christ. And then number 12. The resurrection of Christ and resurrection of his people results in thanksgiving and praise to God through Christ. It's for our comfort, but it's also for his exaltation. And Paul is inspired by the wisdom and the direction of God to encourage these people who are going through suffering that will increase exponentially about the glorious hope of Christ and of his resurrection. And after this, as Bo had graciously and at wonderfully talked about yesterday, or excuse me, last Sunday, that impacts us to be faithful. What a way to close this letter. He started out extremely worried about the factions and the sin, the immorality, and he closes with this glorious promise. And that's how we need to close. We need to close thankful, praising God, exalting in Him. And then, in a few minutes, gathering together to praise and worship Him with hearts that are full of gladness and full of assurance of this promise. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this time, for your word. Thank you that just as you in your wisdom comforted the people in Corinth, you comfort us today, you strengthen us today with these great and marvelous truths. Oh Lord, I pray that you would cause us not to dwell upon our own sin, upon this world, upon the rejection of Christ, but Lord, cause us to focus upon you. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are indeed the author and perfecter of our faith, that you are our risen and living Savior. And we thank you and praise you in your own name. Amen.